Hi, everybody. Dennis Prager here. Now, am I seen or is it only Snoopy at my feet? What are we seeing? Just you. Right, now. Oh, right me? Yeah. So now, folks, this is a collector's item show. Number 251 Fireside Chat. Not only is Otto here, but Snoopy as well. So, Forrest, if you would please, you will now see an amazing sight. I'm afraid to move lest I discombobulate his world. Okay, now you know I got both guys here. I'm Dennis Prager. I already told you it's Fireside Chat number 251. To review in, in very briefly, this is a completely spontaneous time together for me to offer you some thoughts about life and take your questions from wherever you are in the world watching this. Well, when I am asked, and I'm not sure I'm ever asked now that I think of it, I don't really know if I am asked, but I offer this even if I'm not asked to summarize the basic message of 40 years of radio broadcasting. This is the 40th anniversary this month. I began, I hope it's obvious, at a pretty young age, and I'm very lucky in so many ways, that's one of them. So if I, whenever I summarize my life's work, it's, it has been this, the consequences of secularism. I realized this at such a young age that society was playing with fire, Western society in particular, by getting rid of the various religions based on the Bible what we call Judeo-Christian values and religions. Yes, I'm well aware Judeo-Christian doesn't apply to theology, but it does apply to values. Just the fact that we all assent to the Ten Commandments as divine is enough for me. If all people believed, you know, all in both senses of the word, every human, and that's all they believed, the all is both, that God exists and gave us the Ten Commandments, the world would be not utopia, but certainly closer to utopia than to dystopia. So I have been, I've been explaining the consequences of secularism. Do you want to know why? We are living in the age of the absurd, where people are expected to say that children will decide at the age of six whether they're a boy or a girl, that men menstruate, that America is a systemically racist society, even though millions upon millions of black people want to and have moved to this country. I mean, the list of absurdities, I actually have a column out. You should get it. You don't have to get it. I mean, access it. It's free. Just write Dennis Prager, The Age of Absurdity, or The Absurdities, we believe, whatever the title was. And I have a list. I mean, just really crazy stuff. It's all because of secularism. As G.K. Chesterton, an English thinker living the late, late 19th and early 20th century, he is reputed to have said, we don't know for a fact that he said it, but I know I didn't say it, so I got to give credit to somebody. When people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing. 
they believe in anything. That is the, that is the summary of the age in which we, we live. Dostoevsky, the great Russian novelist, in his great novel, Brothers Karamazov, wrote, where there is no God, all is permitted. That is exactly what has happened also. The genocides of the 20th century, which so few colleges teach, no high schools virtually teach it. How many young Americans know about the Gulag Archipelago or about the great cultural revolution, the great leap forward? Do you know how many people now killed? Between 60 to 80 million. Starved to death deliberately, like Stalin did to 7 million or 6 million or 5 million Ukrainians. And all of these movements of genocide were secular. That's why if you ever hear, oh, more people have been killed by religion in the name of God than anything else, it's just not true. It's a lie, but they don't know they're lying. That's the, that's the propaganda that they've picked up. No century saw as much bloodshed as the 20th, not just because they had the weapons to do it, but because there was nothing to stop them. When people think that God will judge them for their behavior, they might act a little better. So the question is, given the, the terrible consequences of the death of God and religion, why are more and more young Americans and young people el elsewhere, probably everywhere, alienated from religion? In America, they're known as nuns, N-O-N-E-S, meaning no religion. You have any religion? None. Why is this happened? So I want to give you three reasons. And it's especially relevant because religious people are, among other things, happier. Everybody acknowledges that. Every poll shows it. Religious people are happier. That doesn't mean every religious person is happy and every irreligious person is unhappy. I feel silly even having to explain that, but I don't mean this to, to be at all uh, offensive, but people are not taught to think clearly in, in schools any longer. So I now explain more things than I ever did, like generalizations have exceptions. So yes, it makes people happier. It makes generally, it, it has made people better. I'm talking about Judeo-Christian religions. I'm not saying others don't. I'm just talking about these. I'm talking about the Western world. So why are so many young people alienated from religion? And I will offer you three reasons in not, no order of importance, just three reasons. One is religion is associated with being judged. And that's correct. You are judged. <laughs> You're entirely right if you associate good religion with being judged. I must say, if God doesn't judge people, I'm an atheist. My faith depends upon God judging people. What kind of crappy God doesn't care how people act? That's what non-judgment means. I don't care how you act. You torture little children or you torture animals for that matter. I don't judge. 
The idea that people want a non-judging religion or a non-judging God shows you how little serious thought people engage in. I'm out. I am. I. I. I would leave my religion tomorrow if if it were clear to me that the the God of my religion doesn't judge people. The the idea that uh, that mass murderers. And, and people who risk their lives to save other people have the same fate. God doesn't judge goodness or evil is, is aside from demoralizing and depressing is atheism inducing. So next time you think, no, I don't want to be judged. Really? You would like a world where nothing were judged. Are you that bad? <laughs> I mean, that's what it really would seem to suggest. So, but that's the first thing people don't want to be judged. That's why I am not a big fan of all the billboards. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. I, 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 I know that this is somewhat alienating to some of you for whom that is the essential message of your life. God loves you. The essential message I admit of my life has been God judges you. That's the most loving thing God can do is judge people because it means he cares how we act toward other people. If God loves everybody equally, I'm again an atheist. I, I don't want such a God, to be honest. The thought that God loves the torturer as much as the tortured? Why? And where does it say that, by the way? You know that unconditional love, which I have talked about in the past. I'll just tell you, Google has a, uh, believe it or not, a website that tracks the use of terms and words over the last hundred or so years. Unconditional love is at zero in the beginning of the 20th century and starts skyrocketing after the 1960s. It was not created by religious people. It was created by secular people, unconditional love. But as so often, religious people are more influenced by the secular society surrounding them than by their own religion. Yeah, I, I, I just will say, I don't, I don't know where it is applicable, unconditional love. You know that the mother of this, uh, this Muslim boy who stabbed Salman Rushdie, the, the novelist, 10 or 12 times and did horrible damage to him very, very recently, in the last week. Uh, the mother is interesting. They're from Lebanon. They live in New Jersey, USA. I think the father is still in Lebanon or moved back to Lebanon. And the son was living with the mother. He was somewhat of a loner which is typical for the people who do these things. Then he went to visit his father in Lebanon. There he became an Islamist or radical Muslim, came back and stabbed almost to death Salman Rushdie because the uh, Iranian regime, what I think 30 years ago, put out a fatwa, a religious decree that if you murdered a Muslim who killed Salman Rushdie, would get millions of dollars and go to heaven. That was the de declaration of the Iranian regime. Anyway, the mother 
of this monster said, I, I wash my hands. He is no longer my son. I, uh, I have no interest in speaking to him. A lot of people probably think that's cruel. I didn't. What should she say? I love you, honey. Is that a better response to a 20-something-year-old who goes over to an innocent person, stabs out his eye, severs the nerves to his arm in, in this repeated stabbing for ideological slash religious reasons? I don't think the message is, I love you, honey. You know, actions need to have consequences. We should be big boys and big girls now. So, the 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 first the first reason for the decline of religion is people don't want to be judged. What was the second one that I just gave? Um, baby in a sea of secularism. Oh, oh! So I'm I'm still on judges. I didn't yeah, move to still, number two. Yeah, Holy crow! Judges. <laughs> My internal clock said. I'm up to three, but I'm only up to number two. Number two, reason number two is we are swimming in a sea of secularism. Everything is secular. In the West, everything. In America, we don't even say Merry Christmas anymore. We say Happy Holidays. We don't say Christmas vacation. We say Holiday Vacation. We don't say Christmas Party. No longer do businesses have Christmas parties. They have holiday parties. Even the one religious holiday, Thanksgiving, has certainly religious overtones, too, uh, uh, in America. Everything is secular. Their education is secular. Their their, uh, entertainment is secular. It's completely devoid of God, Bible, religion. It's shocking that you meet any young people who takes God, Bible, religion seriously, given the, the ocean of secularism in which they swim. It's not exactly produced a happier or deeper or kinder generation, has it? And my third reason? Don't have a good argument for it. Third reason is uh, the, the religious themselves have done an awful job in selling religion. And I, I don't really blame them. This is, not a, this is not an attack. It's just a description. Religious Jews and Christians, Catholics, Protestants, it, it doesn't, doesn't matter. Jews, they, they have not done a good job in explaining, explaining, that's key, religion. Why should you be religious? They told them what being religious means, but they didn't tell them why it's important why it's relevant. That's why I'm writing my books, The Rational Bible. I, I use the text to show how relevant it is, that you will live a better life if you take this seriously. You will understand life better. They just didn't make the case for religion. Do you know that I almost never argue about God's existence? I've debated on occasion. It's on YouTube. The late Christopher Hitchens and I had a debate on this issue, but I don't, I don't find that compelling. I am much more interested in explaining to people why God is necessary 
then that God exists. Because if God exists but is not relevant, it's, it's, it's like not existing. Why is it important? Well, I'll give you one example to give a controversial subject. People who take the Bible seriously don't believe that uh, sex is not binary. We believe sex is binary. There's male and there's female. We don't deny that there are people who feel that they are a member of the opposite sex. That's a separate issue. But there are two sexes. And people who are secular are more likely to believe, along with Facebook, that there are 56 genders. That was the last I looked. 56 choices under, if you sign up for Facebook, have you seen that? You should look at it. No, yeah. I haven't seen that. Yes, well, because you signed up if you have yeah. an account a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. 56. Was that the number of Heinz, uh, Heinz 56 varieties or something? Yeah. As many genders as... As has Heinz products. Yes, exactly. That's right. Exactly. Wow. That's what I said when people stop believing in God. They don't believe in nothing. They believe in anything. So a lot of religious people didn't know how to make religion relevant. Christians told their kids to believe in Jesus, and religious Jewish folk told their kid to keep the Jewish law. And they're both fine, and they're both the central doctrine of their religion, but neither explains why you should take the religion seriously. They explain what the religion demands much more than what the religion teaches. So... There you go. That was, I think, the three reasons, and it's a cat catastrophe that we have entered the realm of believing in anything. Okie dokie. What, what's my timing? Did I speak for a while? You're at 18 minutes. 18, good. Okay. All right, sir, take it away. Hi, Dennis. I'm Evanston. I'm 32 years old. I live in Los Angeles, California. I had a question. What was it like growing up in New York City? Um, I know you're from Brooklyn. Um, I'm, it's one of my favorite cities in the world. I just want to know what was it like growing up in New York City. And um, also, have you ever been to Haiti? Because I asked, I'm Haitian, and I know there's a large Haitian population in Brooklyn currently. So I just wanted to know. What was it like growing up in New York City, and have you ever been to Haiti? Thank you. Thank you. I love those questions. Let's see what I can do here. And the answer is, I did it. You know, the ability to, to take pride in, in nothing is, is infinite. I took pride in that. That's pathetic. Okay. So, uh, what was it like growing up in New York City? I have two big answers. In one sense, it was the greatest blessing because in high school and in college, I really benefited from the cultural life of New York. I went to a concert every single week. I taught myself to conduct orchestras based on my love of music and going to the New York Philharmonic Library, where I would take out scores and follow them while listening to recordings. And I have ended up, uh, my most recent was conducting a Haydn symphony at the Disney Concert Hall, one of the great nights of my life.
So I loved the culture in New York. However, New York came for me, just speaking for me, with a price. New Yorkers. <laughs> that was a big price. I, I, there are some wonderful people in New York, obviously. But generally speaking, I wasn't a big fan. New Yorkers tend to think New York is the center of the world. And, the, and there's a certain undeserved arrogance in that proposition. And I found people nicer elsewhere. I like nice people. Now, nice is not enough either. You could be nice and have terrible values, believe it or not. But in any event, at least on, on the level of interaction with people around you, I like, I like nice people more than not nice people. They were nicer in Nashville. That was the first city that I went to uh, in my early 20s outside of New York in the United States. I'd already been abroad, oddly enough, but not around the U.S., and I was blown away. It was so much cleaner, safer, and the people were nicer. So anyway, I moved to California in my mid-20s, in my tw about 25 years of age. And I was very happy to make that move. So I benefited culturally, but I did not want to stay there, and I didn't about Haitians. So I have not been to Haiti, which bothers me, by the way. I, I want to get to every country in the world before I leave this world. I've been to 131. So that bothers me. I've been to D Dominican Republic, which of course shares the island of Hispaniola with, with Haiti. And I speak French, so I could get along there pretty well. But I've never been there. So thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Note, by the way, that, well, I want to get that name again. Evanson. Evanson. Evanson loves New York, lives in California, and wears a Connecticut t-shirt. <laughs> that was quite a combo, Evanson. You have a lot of explaining to do. Elizabeth, 31, Horicon, Wisconsin, USA, USA. How do I convince my husband that working on our marriage is important? Anytime we go through a rocky situation, mainly financial, he puts anything marital to the back of his mind to focus on what he considers, quote, the important stuff. He believes that having a good schedule for our kids, being financially stable, being more active should all be fixed before we work on our marital issues. I believe that if we could solve our marital issues, how we disagree and how we speak to each other, that everything else would be much easier to work on. I think he would agree, but maybe I'm not explaining myself in a way he can understand. I'd love to know your thoughts and any advice you could give me. I love and respect everything you do. I'm praying for Megan to have a safe delivery. This was written before her delivery. It was a safe delivery. Your prayer was answered. And can't wait to hear about our beautiful baby. He, he, it is a beautiful baby. That's correct. So I would have to speak to your husband to give a better answer. I, I have talked to so many people on my radio show about marital issues because I have a male-female hour once a week. And 
I am so aware that no, as convincing as the case that I hear, I know I have to hear the other's side as well. So I, I will answer you, but with the understanding that any serious response would, would have to have his input too. So I, will, I would just say that for me, almost everything is bearable in a marriage if the marriage is okay. So I'm on board with the idea that the marriage is number one. Finances are very important because it could gnaw at you if you can't pay the bills. It's horrible. Children problems are horrible. They gnaw at you. But if, if, if let's put it, I'm put it in the in the other direction. Let's say you have a lot of money and your kids are fine, but but uh, you ha- you have. Uh, a very troubled marriage. You'll have a troubled life. Look, a lot can go wrong in life. Believe me, I know. Anybody who doesn't know, you have to live in a cocoon not to know that. So I, I, I don't know why your husband might think, and I say might because I haven't spoken to him, that you put the marital issues on the back burner. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you one thing I would say to him, aside from what I've just said. At what point will you work on the marriage? Do you, do you have a, a set income? Do, do, you, do you have a set home that we would be living in? If, if we're putting it on the back burner for now, when won't it be on the back burner? That's what I would like to know. Generally speaking, people putting things on the back burner never get to them. <laughs> That's the human condition. So I, I, I would hope that he would work on it now. It's like when I meet men, young men who tell me, when I ask them, because I ask everybody, you know, so you want to get married? Yeah. And when? When I'm, I'm not ready yet. Well, Otto was here a long time, so I, I'm, I'm, whoa, maybe he's going to stay. Oh, he did the Otto circle. That was important. So when are you going to get married? When I'm ready. I'm not ready now. To which the response is, you'll never be ready. There's no such thing, I'll be ready. You wake up one day, I'm ready to get married. <laughs> it doesn't happen. You get ready when you do it. That's when you get ready for anything. You're not ready for a job. You're not ready for a marriage. You're not ready for kids. You're not ready for any change in your life. You make the change, then you get ready. That's, that's my view. Antonio, Westchester, PA. I know Pennsylvania. I know exactly where that is outside of Philly. Hey, Dennis, Otto, and cast. Who's cast? Oh, you guys are cast. <laughs> I'm a big fan of your Bible commentary, reading both Genesis and Exodus. Deuteronomy's coming out in a couple of months. My question is, does God learn over time in his relationship with humans? This is not a question most people, even religious people, think about, but it is a very legitimate question. 
I'll give you an example, which I deal with in my commentary on Genesis. When God saw how bad human beings turned out, which is why he destroyed the world except for Noah and his family, it says, and I'm translating in my head from the Hebrew, and God got sad, God got saddened unto his heart, seeing how man acted on earth. Now, why, if, if, uh, if God knew that we would screw up, why did he get sad? Doesn't his getting sad imply he is observing his creature, the human being? And even if it's an anthropomorphic term, which it is, I don't know if God gets sad. I think God gets sad. I, I hope he does. He sees suffering and gets sad. But anyway, whether God does or not, it says it, it means that God, if you take it seriously, it means God did not exactly know how humans would behave and got sad. That means God does learn. That bothers a lot of people, and I understand that. But I'm only giving you the text itself. So my thinking is that since God gave one creature in the universe free will, the human being, clearly we could do what God doesn't expect us to do. We could be much worse than he expected, which is what the biblical verse implies. So in that sense, it is very possible God does learn. By the way, if you don't believe God learns, I have no problem with that either. I don't have an axe to grind here, but I'm, I'm answering you honestly based on the text itself. What's our timing? 31. Mm. Time's up. Better to want to go on than to want to take a break. I got to say that. Well, everybody, thank you for watching. And I don't have a parting message except see you next week. Thank you for watching this video. To help keep PragerU videos free, please consider making a tax-deductible donation.